Hello and welcome to episode number 75 of Chell Squared. I'm your host, Andrew Chelney. And wow, do we have a special guest on the show today. One of the best to ever play the sport of hockey. Named one of the 100 greatest players by the NHL during the centennial celebration of the league a couple of years ago. It is an honor to introduce former Islander, Sabre and Ranger, Pat LaFontaine at Chell Squared. Pat, how are you? Happy Thanksgiving. Hey, happy Thanksgiving. It's uh, great to be here on the show, and uh, congratulations, Andrew. Thank you, Pat. I really appreciate it. Uh, how did you spend your Thanksgiving? What did you do? Well, we were just talking. Um, my uh, my wife's side of the family were out here on Long Island, and uh, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law had all of uh, the the Hoey, LaFontaine, McCoy, slash uh, O'Day families together. It was probably about I'm going to say 25, 25 or 28 of us all together and just um, giving thanks and celebrating out in Centerport, uh, Long Island. And we had a couple of turkeys and uh, a lot of amazing food and a lot of, uh, a lot of toast and celebration. My, my uh, brother-in-law just got engaged uh, yesterday too. So that was exciting news. And then uh, my daughter was recently married the uh, last uh, three weeks and we had another wedding. So I think uh, my, my nephew got married about two months ago, three months ago. So, so there was a lot of excitement and celebration, but mostly giving thanks and spending family time. Well, congrats to all of them. I mean, that, that sounds super exciting to have so many weddings in a row that, that this has to be a, a great time for you guys. It sure is. Uh, you know, my both, um, you know, my daughters and my son, my wife uh, and my you know, our new son-in-law, we were all together with, uh, with extended family and, um, you know, celebrating with like we, everybody does on Thanksgiving day. So it was, uh, it was a special event. And then we had surprising news that my brother-in-law was getting engaged and, um, lots of, uh, like I said, toast and celebration and, you know, just being together with family. I always look at Thanksgiving as one of the, the, the best, uh, holidays, obviously one of the best meals, Andrew, of the year. Um, but then just to get the family together and get a chance to get caught up on where everybody is and, you know, celebrate uh, all that is good and, and, you know, be thankful for all the blessings. And obviously all the people I always think of our service men and women who, uh, who sacrifice so much for, uh, for us to be able to, to have what we have. So giving thanks and um, being together with family is pretty special. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. Uh, So let's rewind all the way back to the 1982-83 QMJHL season. Pat LaFontaine, a budding star in the queue. I want to highlight the season you had with the Verdun Juniors because uh, each team played 70 games and these stats that you had, you couldn't get these in a video game if you tried. The second leading scorer was Claude Verret with 188 points. The leading scorer was Pat LaFontaine with... Get this, 234 points. You beat Mario Lemieux, who dropped 184 that year. Pierre Turgeon had 163. And Gerard Gallant, who's who's now the head coach of Vegas, he had 128 that same year. And to top it all off, not only that, you were the leading scorer in the postseason with 35 points in 25 games en route to a QMJHL championship. Take me through what it was like to have a season like that and also what it was like for an American to play in a Canadian Junior League back then because i'm sure it wasn't nearly as common as it is today well it, it wasn't common andrew and it was uh, obviously a, a special time and uh, i remember you know being a, you know i was born in st louis and lived there until i was seven started skating in an outdoor rink and fell in love with the game and my dad was transferred uh, through chrysler uh, back to michigan and that's where uh, the LaFontaine family, um, LaPierre, my, my mom's name. So they were all kind of from the Michigan area and still still from this area, that area. But we we moved there and a, a rink went up about a mile away. And so um, being an American back then, um, you hoped for possibly a college scholarship. Uh, it wasn't until the 1980 Olympics, you know, when they won the gold medal and we're all jumping up and down. We, you know, a lot of young boys and girls just, you know, uh, developed that Olympic dream. And so... You know, thinking of, of playing junior hockey in Canada or maybe playing pro seemed, you know, that that could be a little bit far-fetched. But, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, I played local hockey in Michigan and we put together this midget team uh, that was pretty special, uh, 16-year-old kids. And um, on that team, four players, actually eight players were drafted into the pros. Four of us played uh, pro and the other, another four played division uh, one hockey, which was kind of unheard of back 
uh, in the early 80s. And so when it, during that midget team uh, existence, I, I was drafted to go play junior hockey in Canada. And um, that's a story in itself because being an American, you could play in all three uh, uh, Western Ontario or Quebec League. Um, and, and that's a story upon itself I can share an, another time. But um, I, was, I was able to choose and go to play for the Verdun Juniors, as you said, uh, and leave home. And a lot of my friends my senior year at Waterford Kettering uh, in Michigan, all of my, my classmates were like, what are you doing, you know, leaving your senior year to go play hockey up in Montreal? What are you, crazy? And, uh, I, you know, I was following my dream, and little did I know that uh, that would be a storybook season where just everything seemed to come together from the the moment um, I went to the my billets, Giselle and Yvonne Boyer, they, they took me in and treated me like another son and uh, felt right at home. Um, and then we got off to a great start, the team Played really well. My idol as a kid growing up was Guy Lafleur and Gilbert Perrault, and somehow I was able to, you know, get a, a point streak put together. I think Guy Lafleur had the point streak of 41 consecutive games, uh, and I was, you know, I guess the only way I could beat him was to somehow beat a record. But uh, I ended up uh, going about 44 games in a row uh, to start the season and uh, consecutively. Uh, which brought him to one of the games to drop a puck. So I got to meet my idol. So it got off to a good start. And then we hit Christmas time and, you know, Pierre Kramer was our coach, who's Mike Bossy's brother-in-law. And he did an amazing job as a coach, especially for a young, you know, 17-year-old rookie. Uh, but he, he gave me the opportunity and I worked hard and had some great teammates. Um, at that time, Mario had about a 50-point lead at Christmas and we made a trade and you mentioned his name, Andrew, for Gerard Gallant. And Gerard Gallant became my left winger. And obviously he's now the coach of uh, the Vegas Knights and is doing an amazing job, but he became my left winger and Mario was about 50 points in front of me. And, um, you know, our team really gelled together. We had a, my other right winger was a guy by the name of John Maurice cool. And, you know, we formed this pretty, you know, special line of chemistry and um, we just had a great team around us. And before you know it, we, uh, we get to the end of the season, and somehow, uh, with with great teammates, uh, I ended up beating Mario by 50 points. So that doesn't happen. And trust me, he remembered 10 years later because uh, he ended up coming back and beating me uh, 10 years later in the NHL, which is a, a special fun story to share at some point. But um, but that year was a storybook season. Uh, I remember telling uh, Eric Taylor, who drafted me, you know, that we would uh, have a special year, and he told me about the 1969. Verdun Juniors, um, Junior Canadians, which is the same team uh, that played in the Montreal Forum in front of 18,000 fans as junior hockey in 69. It was Gilbert Perrault, uh, one of my idols, and Rich, Rick Martin. And um, the team ended up uh, selling all these games out in the forum and they, what a team it was. And I said, Eric, we're going to do it this year. And he, he laughed at me. He says, oh, that's once in a lifetime. It will never happen again. I said, Eric, we're going we're gonna to play at the forum. And we're going to have junior hockey and sell out. And he, he laughed. And so, you know, I, sometimes, you know, things come true, Andrew, but we ended up taking that season into the playoffs and Jacques Lemaire was a rookie coach for the Longay and they played uh, Laval, which was Mario's team and they beat them in six games. And we were able to beat Schwinnigan. I was believe in the, in the conference finals there and the, to go to the finals against Longay, which was Jacques Lemaire's team. And that year, the Canadians and the Nordiques were knocked out of the playoffs. And uh, be as it may, we were able to play um, our, our, our games at the Montreal Forum. And, of course, I reminded Eric uh, Taylor of that. And we ended up playing three of the five games uh, in the Forum. I was a 17-year-old kid. The first game went into double overtime. We beat uh, Longay. It was uh, double overtime. And um, I remember them making an announcement. It was in French, and they mentioned the name Molson. So I turned to Jean-Marie's cool, my lineman. I said, what did they just say? He said, he said, they just said it's the first time in 46 years they ran out of beer. And uh, there, were, <laughs> there, were, there were fans sitting literally in the aisleway. Um, it was a packed house. And we ended up going five games. The, the last game we played um, – as a Verdun junior was in the Montreal forum, we cl clinched the president's cup. And here I was uh, within a year uh, carrying around the president's cup in the Montreal forum, had a chance to meet Gila Fleur, had a chance to do something that, uh, you know, 
Gilbert Perot was able to do, play in the Forum, and then obviously win the President's Cup championship uh, in the Montreal Forum, uh, and and play with some great teammates. And uh, you know that was that was uh, one of the most uh, storybook and memorable years um, any 17-year-old kid could have. So I was very blessed and lucky to to have that time in Montreal. This was 36 years ago, and I'm 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 so surprised that you remember so many small details from that season. I, again, this was this was almost four years ago, and yet you remember that they 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 ran out of beer. Uh, that who who you asked, uh, who you turned to to ask what they said on the loudspeaker. I mean, this is I, I'm bl- I'm blown away. This is such a long time ago, and yet to you, this seems like it was yesterday. Well, it's funny as you're sitting, as I'm speaking about it, I'm kind of visualizing um, that that time, and you know, you, you kind of, I think, I think athletes in general are kind of, uh, they've kind of got that photogenic, artistic mind where they they actually see things and visualize. So, you know, I had a chance to, you know, walk down memory lane just talking about it, but it uh, it was one of those years where just you know everything kind of came together, the chemistry of the team, the time. And uh, it's the only it's only the second time in the history of junior hockey that the Montreal Forum was packed for a playoff game. And I, you know, looking back when I said it to Eric Taylor, who was the general manager, I kind of said it like, yeah, we're going to do this. And I was sincere and I believed it. But um, looking back now, it only happened once. And it was in 1969. And the only other time was 1982-83, which was 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 that special season and believe it or not Jacques Lemaire was a rookie you know head coach in junior hockey and then he went on obviously to have this amazing coaching career and win Stanley Cups and he's you know a hockey 100 hall of famer special guy but um and then Mario you know Mario and I went head to head I'll never forget the games um when Laval and Verdun would play and there was only 20 minutes away and it was our crowd going to their, you know, building their crowd coming to our building. It was eight to seven game, you know, six, five. And the, the, it was, you know, reminded me of the, the Islander Ranger, Ranger rivalry that the, the fans were, were nuts. And back then you were allowed to smoke. So by the third period, the, the, the you know, there'd be a cloud of smoke up near the, <laughs> up, up, up near the, uh, the clock. And, uh, they were just kind of these historic, you know, back and forth games. And, um, uh, so that brought, that was bringing back some fond memories, but you know what, listen, it was, uh, it was something uh, of a year that, uh, you know, everything kind of clicked. And of course, through that year, I was fortunate enough to then be drafted by the New York Islanders, you know, in, in the Montreal forum, you know, it was only, a, I think a month later, or less than a month later at the NHL draft. And, uh, so, and I had my parents there and, uh, you know, every kid's dreams to obviously, you know, once one day get drafted and, and it all happened within a year. It was a pretty special season. Well, speaking of the Islanders taking you in the draft, coming off four straight Stanley Cups, they make a trade with the Rockies, uh, the Colorado Rockies at that at that time, uh, to take you with the third overall pick, one before Steve Eisenman was taken, something that I'm sure you remind him of uh, when you guys meet up. Uh, you joined the team in the late stages of the 83-84 season, uh, and then you went back to the Cup Final. You lost that year to the Oilers, but in that in the, in the deciding game, you were the only one to score for the Islanders. Uh, Edmonton won that game 5-2, but they weren't able to stop you in particular. Uh, so what was that experience like for you to go up against players like Gretzky in your rookie season, fresh out of the queue? Well, it was, it was an amazing experience. It was everything. I remember, you know, it was about a month into playing pro hockey right before the Stanley Cup finals. And I played 15 games. And I remember having to pinch myself that this was, you know, it, it exceeded expectations of everything you ever could think of. And um, then obviously playing with a team that won four Stanley cups. And then, you know, obviously a group of champions and, um, Al Arbor is our coach. So Pat Flatley and I both joined the team. He came from the Canadian Olympic team. I came from the U S Olympic team. And then to go to the Stanley cup finals, um, that very first year and then try to win a fifth Stanley cup. And, you know, we were, we were hanging in there the guys, you know, it made you appreciate what they did, what they did over the past five years. And I don't think anybody, Andrew will come close to the one record that that they set was 19 consecutive playoff series. And uh, if you take that back in the old days, um, you used to need, you know, you needed two series to win a Stanley Cup. 
when the Canadians won five. And so that would be the equivalent of nine Stanley Cups. But, um, but it was, uh, it was a, an amazing consecutive run, and to be a part of it was special. The interesting thing was, was that they had beaten the Edmonton Oilers four straight the year before. And I, there's a story of Gretzky and Messier walking by, um, wondering, you know, how they just got beat four in a row after having a great team, and then seeing all the Islanders packed in ice bags and realizing that they, you know, they were celebrating, but they were all beat up, and that the the war that you have to go through, the attrition of, of you know, survival of the fittest, on top of obviously having to go through two months of of battling to to be successful, and I think they they learned a lot, and that year. Uh, final the next year, you know, we went in and uh, we had some players. I know that Tonelli and um, Bossy, um, Potvin, Den- uh, um, Langevin, and, and Morrow, those guys were all hurt and playing hurt. And I was, Pat Flatley and I were hoping they would, come on guys, let's hold it together here. We can, uh, and we need one more here. Let's, let's win this fifth Stanley Cup. And sure enough, I think the Oilers going through their, their losses and in order to be successful, you got to go through defeats. Um, they just got their machine starting to run as the, you know, the Islanders great run was starting to kind of come to a, an end. And we were just trying to hold it together to maybe win one more. But um, I think Gretz, uh, Gretz and Ness and that whole Edmonton team uh, lifted their game to another level. And as you know, I think they went on to win four out of the last, you know, four and five years. Uh, or it was, it was five and seven years, something like that. But, uh, um, you know, it was, it was everything that you could imagine uh, as a young 19-year-old kid coming to uh, the NHL and playing of the championship team. And then to go to the Stanley Cup finals was just extremely special. And, um, you know, I wish we could have won it. Sometimes, it, you know, it makes you appreciate how hard it is. And the guys will tell you that. Um, but it was, you know, to have that experience and play, uh, on a great team early on and learn a lot, uh, you know, was something I cherish. So fast forward a couple of years and it's 1987. Now, Pat, I think uh, I think you know where I'm going with this, and I'm sure you've talked about it ad nauseum, uh, but indulge me here for a second if you can. The Easter epic, April 18th, 1987, Isles and Caps, Game 7, first round of the playoffs, games on a Saturday night, tied 2-2 after 60 minutes, then tied after one overtime, two overtimes. Three overtimes. It's almost two in the morning on Easter Sunday, and you're still playing in the fourth overtime in this game. I'm not even sure how you're finding the energy to continue playing at this point, uh, but the the puck bounces to you near the blue line, and you rip a shot off the post and in. What was that game and that moment like for you? What were you seeing out there? Well, it was it was historic, obviously. We didn't know that was what, you know, when Brian Trache scored with five minutes to go, um, we didn't know how historic, how historic it was going to become. Uh, but, but I think when we look back, we were down three games to one. And back then, you know, it was, I think it was only one other team or two teams that actually came back from a three to one deficit. So to just force a game seven wasn't good enough, but we, we felt, Hey, listen, we're here now. We just, we've come back and, you know, let's keep this Islander tradition going. And sure enough, uh, one overtime, two overtimes. By the time we hit the second overtime, it was almost like we were on automatic pilot because, it, you know, it took a lot just to force a game seven. So I think the first five to seven minutes, you know, it was just up and down. And back in back then in 87, was a little bit of a clutch and grab league, <laughs> not like today. Um, and so I think we were holding on for dear life and, trying to win. Nobody wanted to make that mistake. And I think, thank God Andy Van Helman put his whistle away um, because, um, you know, I think there could have been a lot of penalties called, Uh, but the goalies, uh, I'll never forget, uh, you know, Kelly Rudy and our end and Bob Mason, who was a teammate of mine on the the 84 Olympic team. So I knew Bob and um, both, both goalies made uh, the the pucks look like beach balls. If they were going to see the puck, they were saving. I've never seen, uh, a goalie exhibition by two goalies like that ever again. And uh, I just remember it was late. Uh, we we were in between periods trying to, you know, put our feet up and try to hydrate and bananas and Carbo Pro and whatever we could take to kind of keep our energy up. But um, it was almost two in the morning and I'll, I'll always remember Jim Pickard, our trainer, and he took a water bottle, he squeezed it down the back of my neck, and he, he called me Pop. He said, hey, Pop, you're going to get one. I, you're going to pop one in. I can feel it right now. And I, I, at that moment, um, it was kind of surreal because I heard uh, the music from Twilight Zone. So you heard this, and 
I looked up into the crowd and there are people sleeping and people sleeping <laughs> in the crowd. It was almost two o'clock in the morning. There's 75 shots to 57 shots to seventh period. And I did have a moment there where is this, is this really happening? It was kind of a surreal moment. And uh, it wasn't long after in the next 10 seconds, uh, Bobby Basson came off the ice and I jumped on for him and Gordonine was pinching in with the puck and he was coming around the net and he went to throw it in front of the net. I believe it went off of uh, Rod Langway's stick or, or it was Kevin Hatcher's stick and uh, bounced out to me because I was covering, I was covering for, for Gordonine on defense. And I can tell you, Andrew, I've never got a puck that I, it was on my left-hand side. I spun around and took just a slap shot on my right. I've never shot a puck like that professionally because it was just a, the way it bounced over to me. And the puck was rolling, and I thought, just just get it off, please hit the net, because I knew there was a bit of a, a screen and there was guys crashing the net. And uh, I only hoped that uh, the, Bob Mason couldn't see it. And sure enough, it uh, was, I think it kind of uh, was a little bit of a sinker because the puck was on edge, and I heard the post. And it was kind of surreal stoppage of time, and just everything slowed down, and and I was waiting and see after I heard the post and then I saw Bob Mason drop to his knees and I knew that that moment had to be in. And then Dale Henry threw his hands up in the air as, as, and our gloves. And then, then it was pure elation because, you know, we were just jumping up and down and it's over. We couldn't believe we came back and two o'clock in the morning. So I literally, I just shot the puck. I, 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 I hoped that it would hit the net and it hit the post. Um, and I'm, I'm sure Bob Mason would have saved it if he saw it, but, uh, Dale Henry screened the goalie. And I think Rod Langway was laying in front of the net and, um, never shot a puck like that again. And, um, it was a thrilling moment for the team to come back. Um, but to be a part of that moment, uh, it's become, I guess, quoted and deemed the Easter epic because we went uh, obviously early in the Easter morning at two o'clock in the morning. So, um, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, I'm always reminded of at that time of year and, uh, and a great feeling. My son and I, I, you know, a little sidebar where we were at the, the game where Washington had beat uh, in Vegas for the Santa Cup finals. And uh, I think I was ridiculed and deemed kind of the curse there in Washington for many years. And uh, we were at that game when Alex uh, Ovechkin and the team won the Stanley Cup and he was carrying it around. And my son turned to me and said, well, at least they can't blame you now, Dad. It's been like 31 <laughs> years. You're no longer the curse, but um, but it was uh, it's it, 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 every time, you know, every first round and every game seven that comes back around just uh, it brings back fond memories of that that team uh, being down three to one and forcing a game seven and how uh, Kelly Rudy was making amazing saves and the team you know just pulled it together. We find a you know found a way to win and um, you know obviously it's a, it's a special memory. Is that your favorite moment as a New York Islander? Uh, what What are some of your favorite moments uh, on Long Island? And do you still talk to any any other guys from those days? Oh yeah, in fact, we just had a uh, you know every year they have a reunion with the alumni, so we got a chance to see all the guys and uh, reminisce about that uh, that team. Uh, and that was a special year for me because I got married. Actually, uh, that was in May. Um, uh, actually, that would have been in, in, in yeah, late, early, late April, early May, and, and I was married that June, mid-June. Uh, uh, so that was uh, that was special. In fact, uh, the priest in the homily even talked about the fourth overtime. <laughs> so that followed into my wedding, but uh, that, that was a special, special year. Um, I would say, listen, being drafted, you scoring your first goal. Um, I tell the story since we were talking. You know, here I was, a, a young boy in Michigan. I was 15. The 1980, the um, U.S. Olympic team just won in February the the gold medal. So, you know, it was the night of my uh, 20, uh, it was tw- uh, February 22nd, the night of my 15th birthday. Mike Ruzioni scores this goal against the Russians, and we're jumping up and down. And you know, young American boys and girls are dreaming big now that we could, you know, p- potentially play Olympics and maybe win a gold medal one day. And um, so that just happened. And then my dad called my brother and I in we were doing some spring cleaning. We had some extra leaves that we missed in the fall. We always working around the house and we're outside, uh, you know, in May, I think it was May 18th is the exact date. And he calls us in and he said, Hey, listen, the Islanders are in overtime um, in the Stanley cup finals. And, you know, it was on national TV back in the you know, early eighties. And we, my brother and I came in and, 
Sure enough, it wasn't much long after, but, uh, you know, halfway through the, I think it was the first overtime, you know, Lauren Henning passes to John Tedelli and Bobby Nystrom's going to the net and Tedelli throws it to Bobby Nystrom. And then everybody exploded, jumped up and down. It was the first cup. And here I was, you know, just turning 15 and my brother and I are jumping up and down and uh, the house in Waterford, Michigan. And the first thing I said is, where's Long Island? I had to go on a map. <laughs> and, and I found out, that, okay, well, that kind of put Long Island on the map for me. And if you asked me that less than four years later in my first NHL game that I would play on the Olympic team, and then I would go right to the Islanders right before, just after I turned 19 in February and join the team March 1st, and then I would look to my right and my first two wingers were going to be Bobby Nystrom and John Tedelli for my first NHL game. I thought you, I would have thought you were crazy a hundred times over. So, you know, it's, it's amazing how things happen. And sure enough, um, you know, at the end of the day, Lauren Henning, who made the first pass, he and his wife were the ones who set Mary Beth and I up on a blind date, uh, that led to our wedding three years after that. So I always say, you know, the best assist he ever had was, you know, you know, introducing, uh, me to my my future wife Mary Beth who lived next door. Uh, he and his wife said, "We think you and the girl next door would be a great couple." And sure enough, um, you know, look back at that moment when Henning makes the pass to Tonelli and Tonelli to Nystrom, and um, you know, I always believe in fate. So it's uh, an amazing time, and that that year in 1987 was extremely special. That's I got a smile on my face just just hearing you talk about uh, these stories, uh, Pat. Uh, and uh, in 1991, you were traded to Buffalo, and then proceeded to just casually score 46 goals and 93 points in just 57 games with the team. Then the next season in 1992-93, you completely obliterated your career highs: 53 goals, 95 assists for a for 148 points in 84 games alongside Alex McGillney. Uh, run out for the Art Ross, losing to the aforementioned, like we talked about, Super Mario, who had 160 points that season. Was there anything in particular about you or the team that year that led you to such an explosion offensively? Well, it's funny you mentioned, you know, I guess this all comes full, full circle from our first uh, talking about uh, Verdun. Um, you know, that year just chemistry. Uh, Alex McGillney, you know, scored 76 goals. You know, what's, what's neat about that team was Dave Anichuk was the right winger for three quarters of the season. And um, there's never been in the history of hockey, three guys on the same line, all score 50 goals. And uh, Dave Anichuk ended up getting traded. Um, actually two, two hall of famers, Dave Anichuk for Grant Fuhrer to Toronto. And he ended up with, 55 goals that year or 54, 55. And it would have been the first season in the history of the sport where all three guys on one line would have had 50 goals. Um, uh, but, but, you know, we can prorate that and know that that would have happened, but obviously having both Dave and Grant here, you know, two great hall of famers, uh, but the chemistry of that team, you know, we had Dale Howard Chuck, uh, we had um, Donald Audette, Doug Bodger, uh, our power play, you know, was really, you know, a tic-tac-toe of chemistry. And we were able to, I think I had the number one power play in the league that year and um, just a tremendous team. And, you know, everything clicked. And, you know, that year we ended up losing. We won the, we, we swept Boston in the first round four zip. Um, and they came, they were one of the best fit. I think they finished 17, one and one, and we ended up beating four straight. And then we went on to play Montreal and, and um, I had hurt my knee and Alex McGillney was out with a broken ankle. Uh, and we often look back at that season and we lost, I think all four games, three into overtime, but all four games by one goal. And that was the year uh, Patrick, who I think had 10 shutouts and, and those the year the Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley cup. And so, you know, that season was extra special and it just seemed like everything that came together, um, the chemistry and the season. And um, it was just one of those years that you, you reminded me of my junior year. And sure enough, um, you know, Mario, we, the guys we often talk about the story, he was down, I think, I don't know, about 12 points or 15 points. And he had just gone through um, Hodgkin's disease and chemotherapy. And he came back and he, and he didn't play a full season. And we would go along and, and the team would finish strong and we would win a game and 
get three or four points. And then they're like, that Mario got five tonight. <laughs> Before you know it, he was, he was on my tail. And I think he was remembering 10 years earlier when I beat him in junior and he wasn't going to let it happen again. Um, but sure enough, I think he ended up with 53 points in 17 games. Uh, and then he ended up, you know, obviously winning the art Ross. And I often say, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he won because what he went through and coming back from Hodgkins and, and chemo and, showing you know coming back as strong as he did and playing like he did and winning the art ross and then you know going on a bit more most importantly it inspired so many people who were going through cancer or hodgkin's lymphoma so i often say you know listen it's it's honored to finish right behind him knowing that uh he was such an inspiration to so many but that year 92 the 92 93 season um i think a lot of players in the NHL had career seasons for some reason, the, uh, the puck just found the way uh, to the net and there was great chemistry, but I'll, I'll, I'll always cherish that season. Goalies. I'm sure weren't a fan of that. <laughs> weren't a fan of that season. No, they, they don't, they don't remember. They don't have any recollection of that year. <laughs> uh, so in 1990, you had your first NHL concussion. And then after the 93 season injuries kept you out of the lineup for the majority of the next two seasons, you played for just 38 games combined in those two years. But then in 95, 96, you found, you found uh, your stride again 91 points in 76 games that season, and then another concussion uh, made you only play in 13 games the following year, and then doctors recommended you should stop playing. You said no. Uh, You wanted to keep on playing. What made you reach that decision? Well, I had seen some amazing doctors, and one of them in particular was uh, Dr. James Kelly, and uh, we we actually remained very close friends all these years, and I got involved into the American Academy of Neurology. And it's been always a passion of mine to kind of give back with what I've learned um, through, through the injuries that I've had during my career. But, but at that time I was cleared by two, um, you know, world-class neurologists and, and um, you know, I knew I was able to go back and play, but, but having gone through post-concussion syndrome for six months, I could definitely understand why you wouldn't want to come back. Uh, because of what you kind of have to go through. And there was a, something was driving me once I, I, I was able to overcome the, the post-concussion syndrome and it did take six months. Um, but I, my passion was there, my enthusiasm, uh, and someone was telling me I wasn't done playing hockey. And, and I'm so glad that I listened to that, uh, my gut and that intuition and whatever was kind of driving me because, um, having a chance to go back and, and I, I was a ranger that year uh, and play. I, I, I don't think I ever appreciated the game more than I did that one year, just because when it's taken away from you, um, you learn to have a, a, a great appreciation. And it reminds me going back to when I was 12 years old, um, I had an asthma attack. Um, I was in running track and um, I remember having this asthma attack and having to go in an ambulance to the hospital and, they had to give me a shot of adrenaline, and sure enough, the the doctor at twelve told me, "Listen, Pat, you're you have exercise induced asthma, and um, you know you better hit the books because you're you're never going to play sports again." And uh, I remember sitting in front of a fan wheezing all summer long, and wondering if this, you know, you know, my love of sports, this, you know, it was over. Uh, I was never going to be able to, you know, exercise. See, this was before they <clears throat> all the inhalers and the medicine came out, and sure enough, uh, late that fall. Uh, a, a friend of my mom said, uh, have you ever had him tested for allergies? And she said, no. So we went and got tested and I was allergic to just about everything, you know, grass, ragweed, mold, uh, dust, uh, some food allergies. So I ended up getting three shots a week till I was 30, but the, the shots actually helped uh, the immunology, uh, immunology to, to kind of build up a tolerance and allowed the asthma obviously to go away. So, so I know what it's like to have something taken away from you and someone telling you you're never going to do something ever again and then being able to, you know, find that same, you know, second chance. So when when it was taken away from me and doctors had said they weren't sure if I ever play again because of concussion, when I had a second chance to go back, um, it, it just made every practice, every game, um, you know, I just took that whole last season and sure enough, I was able to play at a high level and help the team and be back in New York, not far from Long Island. I was blessed to, you know, obviously play my whole career on Long Island, Buffalo and, and New York city. 
Uh, and it was one more year. It was only, you know, I got to play in the Olympics in 98 and uh, was able to, you know, achieve some milestones and, and, and play with a, a great organization. Uh, and then, and then, you know, the end of that season, uh, had a collision with a teammate. Um, and, and it took me another six months and I realized, okay, well, this, this is, this is time now. It was a hard decision, but, um, I can tell you that, um, having, having played and then having it taken away and then being able to come back and play that last year was, was extremely special and something that's helped me to kind of put closure and move forward, uh, with the rest of my life, uh, you know, and close that chapter. But, uh, um, anytime something's taken away from you and you're able to have a second chance, uh, you, you definitely take it all in. Well, so you wanted to come back to the NHL, but the Sabres doctors didn't want to clear you. You were traded to the Rangers just before the 97-98 season, completing your tour around New York State. This is now your third team. Uh, uh, I remember when we when I interned uh, at the NHL and, and we were talking a little bit about this, you said uh, uh, you didn't have to change your license plate because you were you were still in New York and you, you didn't have to change uh, any of your paperwork. Uh, so <laughs> You, you scored your 1,000th NHL point in a Rangers jersey. And as a Rangers fan, I'm happy you got to do it as a Ranger. What does it mean to you that you have over 1,000 points in the NHL? Well, listen, it's, a, it's first of all, it's a privilege and an honor to play, you know, in the National Hockey League. And I, sh- I sincerely mean that because obviously growing up and born in St. Louis until I was seven and raised in Michigan, you know, never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I'd you know, play 15 years in the National Hockey League, get a thousand points. Um, so you kind of pinch yourself. So it, it you know, you look back and uh, this game, great game of hockey, and you know, you know, has has at the it's at the core of you know just about everything uh, that it's brought me to. And so I, you know, I look at the game and the values of the game and what the game teaches you. And um, you know, it's 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 the character development and the life skills and. Um, the many things it, it introduced me to my wife and obviously our family and, and great friendships and living on Long Island. And, uh, like you said, being traded twice and never changing my license plate, you know, New York state, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty special. So, um, you know, I feel very, very blessed. Uh, then I obviously, I got a chance to meet you, Andrew, when I was, you know, last five years at the national hockey league, um, which was something, you know, really, uh, a great experience to see the business side and work with a great team at the National Hockey League and understand how, you know, behind the scenes all of it works. And um, so that's it. I'm still obviously a consultant, still involved, but um, that's that's been exciting to give back and and see where I could, you know, be of service and help grow the game uh, in the development side of things and be a part of that. So uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. But I, I look back at this great sport and uh, all the experiences and all the friendships and. Um, you know, the memories that that's what, uh, this game has done and, and, and mostly just the great people. So it's been a fun, it's been a fun ride. I'm still involved. Uh, the sport, um, you know, teaches you so much. And I often say it, it lives long, long after you stop playing because of the, the values and the life lessons and the life skills that you, uh, you developed during, you know, this great sport. Shortly before you retired in 1998, you founded the Companions and Courage Foundation. Tell me what that is and why you wanted to, to find this, this organization. Well, I guess it, that's another thing comes full circle is that, you know, hockey was really a stepping stone to do what I do today. And through those relationships and experiences, I met some really courageous kids uh, during my playing days and, and in particular in Buffalo. Um, and, you know, during some of my tough times with injuries, um, you know, obviously they're very trivial compared to what some of the kids were going through at children's hospitals. And I would play video games. And um, there was one boy in particular uh, named Eric Schwegler. And um, uh, he was, he was, uh, I'm sorry, Robert Schwegler. There's another boy named um, Eric who I, I got to know really good, but Robert Schwegler um, was in the, uh, an IC, uh, isolation room at Roswell Park um, in early 90s. And um, I went to visit him 93, 94 when I had my um, my knee reconstructed. And I remember just getting off crutches and my wife, you know, handed me a letter uh, to go visit Robert. Um, and it was he was in isolation. So I put a cap and gown on. I went to see Robert and we played video games. And I got to know Robert over the next, you know, four to five months. And uh, I would stop there two or three days a week, and I was always the Islanders or the Rangers, and he was always the Sabres, and I think I tied him once. He beat me most of the time. And uh, we always have this great interaction and laugh and smile. And one day when I was there, 
uh, nurse had uh, thanked me. I was taking my cap and gown off and waving to Robert, and uh, we just had a you know a, a great time together. And um, she said, "I just want to thank you for coming to see Robert." And I said, "Of course, he's my friend. It's the least I could do." And she grabbed my arm and started to cry. And she said, "I don't think you understand. It's it's the only time this young boy smiles." And um, that really hit me, and I realized that, uh, you know, I could go home, get in a car, or go to dinner, go to a show 24-7, but, you know, Robert was in isolation, you know, 24-7, and um, I just assumed he was always smiling and having a good time, and uh, it us to create the Companions and Courage Foundation um, through some very courageous kids I met during my playing days that, you know, were isolated or did not have room to escape to, and so... Edwin Schlossberg uh, helped us back in early 2000, and we designed these lion's den rooms that we now put in children's hospitals around North America. And they're a really cool environmental feel when you walk in, the, the walls curve in, uh, the tiles change, co- change colors, the tiles, and then there's ceiling tiles, and there's an Xbox you know, 360, there's, there's PCs, computers, there's video conferencing pods, and there's... Um, you know, it's very, the colors are, you know, are always changing and it feels like you're in this really high tech, cool, futuristic, you know, oasis of a room for kids. And uh, it's a place where kids could escape. And we also created these um, kiosks for kids in isolation like Robert. And um, you could then connect them to an online private gaming network with Microsoft, which they did for us. And kids within these lion's den rooms or these kiosks could play games together and uh, just be a kid and forget about maybe where they're at. And the sad thing was Robert passed away about four or five months uh, after I met him. And uh, I still, you know, keep in touch with his mom and dad and his two brothers, uh, Philip and Garrett. And Robert was a big inspiration to the Companions and Courage Foundation. Here we are over 20 years later, and um, we impact about 60,000 kids a year in uh, children's hospitals around North America. We have 20 lions in rooms and uh 400 kiosks and about 80 children's hospitals and um we just want to continue to build more and build these really special rooms through technology and try to uh you know have kids have a special experience and kind of forget maybe what they're going through put a smile on their face and not only their faces but their families' faces and you know have have uh, special moments and um the thing that really inspired me obviously were the kids courage it's called the companions and courage foundation but uh you know i would stood in front of a doctor on three occasions and the uh, the doctor had said you know there's really no medical explanation why this child is still here and and if you can create a special room and and create a a interactive experience and try to put a smile on a a boy a young boy or a girl's face when they're going through tough times uh, you never know what could happen and so you know i've been blessed and the sport of hockey um, to play this game. But I think, you know, meeting the courageous kids and having the relationships through the sport has taught me what, you know, what purpose and service is all about. And so, you know, I learned a long time ago, Andrew, that uh, scoring goals was a lot of fun and it was great. Uh, But when you get older, it's all about the assists in life. It's about watching somebody else score their goals and passing the puck. And it's really about the assists. So, um, you know, I feel very fortunate and, that's one of the reasons why I went back to the National Hockey League to to kind of assist and to help continue to grow the game. And uh, obviously, that's where I met you as an intern. You know, listening to you uh, talk about uh, the organization, I I'm trying to figure out a way to to respond and try to figure out a way to bounce to another question. But I, I'm so blown away by your kindness, and and I'm sure every single person that you've that you've talked to uh, through the organization, through that through the foundation. Uh, appreciates everything that, everything that you've done, and I'm trying to. I, I spent the last couple of minutes trying to figure out. Okay, how do I take this? Uh, to, you know, figure out a way to to bounce to the next question that I had for you. But I'm sitting here. I'm like, this story. I, what you're doing is so incredible that it. I had a few minutes, and I'm still sitting here. Like, I don't really know how to how to follow up with this because this is such a this is such a heartwarming and and fantastic thing that you're doing. I'm sitting here going, okay, I, I have a couple of minutes. I'm trying to figure out a way to to ask the next to next question that I have. And I, <laughs> it's been a couple of minutes. I'm still trying to blank. <laughs> well, listen, Andrew, it's, it's I can tell you this: it's uh, 
it's a great team. I've always been a part of the great teams and you know, it's, it's the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I always say that. So I've been blessed to be on, on teams and whether it's the family unit or the hockey team or the companions and courage team, uh, we've got a great guy named Jim Johnson who has the same passion I do that, uh, you know, obviously runs as executive director day after, you know, day to day. Um, and so he's kind of leading the charge. And then we have, amazing technology uh, board we have an amazing board and you know from that point on we have this real strong team and then we have friends of the foundation that have gotten behind helping us to raise money to 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 build these rooms and to create these experiences and so the best thing i could tell you is is it's 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 great to be a part of teams and um you have you have really amazing relationships and friendships and i think inherently you know you get to a place where everything you learn and every experience you go through prepares you for what's to come next, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, whether you realize it or not. And so, you know, hockey is brought uh, through the experiences, the relationships uh, to, to a place of what, you know, I believe is service outside of the rink. And we, we talked about it in the Declaration of Principles that the values start in the home and sports and school are vehicles to reinforce, you know, those values. So the character development and the life skills the leadership and teamwork and adversity and sacrifice and discipline, all those things you learn um, during the great, you know, in, your, in sports and through teams and teamwork. And so, you know, just carrying that thinking on and then, you know, having met some amazing kids that inspire, you know, I'm, we're just conduits. I always say I'm just a conduit with, um, you know, a, a young courageous boy like Robert Schwegler. Uh, there was a young boy named Eric Fanera. Uh, I remember Jessica and Paul and some courageous kids that uh, inspired me during my playing days and showed me what courage was all about. And, and then, you know, just, you know, putting that together, wrote a book and, and the the whole idea was, Hey, listen, if we could put a smile on their face and create these kind of playrooms for kids to escape to, and I thought about Robert and, and Eric and Jessica and Paul and, uh, you know, all of these young kids that have a place to go to and just be a kid. And, um, and then we learned, obviously the families are affected and we learned that the siblings and families to maybe have an interactive game with your brother or your sister and knowing that parents could, uh, could watch. We have one, one story I'll tell you about, um, it was a, it was a, a boy named Connor and his mom was Karen and we just built a room in New York city, uh, Morgan Stanley. And, um, he, he was coming back, uh, he had cystic fibrosis and he was coming back, um, I think we hadn't been back in the hospital in a year or two. And um, we put a lion's den room with a kiosk. We had a kiosk there and he was, uh, we were actually launching the kiosk and we, we put one of them in the room and he was playing the video games and uh, it was there a good hour. And his mom had come over and we just had a, an unveiling of the room and the kiosks. And his mom came over to Jim Johnson and she was in tears. And she said, um, you know, my son pushes his morphine, you know, pain medicine, and I watch every nine minutes because I, I check and every nine minutes he's, you know, I know he's in pain and he presses it. He said, he's been playing the video games now and over at that kiosks um, for the last 50, 55 minutes. And he hasn't touched his pain medicine once. And, um, you know, she said, that's the best hour of my day. And when you put it in perspective, you know, it's, you don't realize what it's like for families and for kids that are going through this. And so, you know, when you do something like this and you're able to, you know, maybe take a little bit of pain away and put a smile and, and for those families that have gone through it, the families and kids that are going through it in children's hospitals, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, hockey is a game. It's a kid's game. We all love it. And it's a great sport. It teaches us so much, but at the end of the day, we, we all get to a sense of purpose and service. And so, um, you know, there's all these lessons around us and what's really important to me now in my, my own, you know, older life of learning <laughs> through this, this great game and great friendships is it's, it's truly about those assists. So I just share that, that story because it takes a team and I really never understood it. I remember my agent, uh, Donnie Meehan taught me something. He said, my wife and I had bought a, a couple boxes up in Buffalo when I was first traded there. And we, tore the wall down and called it sweet 16. So the kids could all go to, you know, experience a game in children's hospital. They could get out of the hospital with a family and watch a sporting event or a concert, 
And I used to have a big smile on my face before I took every face off because I would personalize photographs for the kids that were going to be in the room up in the suite that night, the suite 16. And um, Donnie Meehan once told me, he says, you know, I'm going to say something. And I told him, you're not going to say anything because it's not about Mary Beth and I, it's about the kids and the family. So he goes, no, no, it's important awareness. And I, and I always say this because it's, it's, it's awareness is key because um, it's important to share you know, what people are doing, not for any other reason than to maybe inspire. But I remember being mad at him and he ended up telling the Globe and Mail about what we did. And I remember being really upset with him for saying something. And I, I called him up and I said, I thought you weren't going to say anything. You know, this is near and dear to Mary Beth. We don't need to, any exposure. And he said, oh yeah. He said, well, Curtis Joseph, Wade Redding and Trevor Linden just bought suites in their, you know, stadiums for kids in children's hospitals. And then I went, well, okay, I'm only a little bit mad at you now. Um, and I think, yeah, I think the, the moral of that story, what Donnie taught me was it's not about, I always said, we're just conduits. But then I found out as years went on, all the players, every single player within an NHL team somewhere had a suite that they donated to the children's hospital. And so, you know, you learn from example, and it goes back to my Islander days, the guys like, you know, Brian Trache, Clark Gillies, Bobby Nystrom, you know, my parents was always about, you know, giving back and, and giving to those in need whenever you can. And always remember where you came from simple le lessons and values. And so it's just, you try to pass it on and do the best you can. And, but it all stems back from this great game of hockey. And, and I think that's how we're having this conversation in the first place. I'm I'm continuously blown away. I mean, I I still don't have a good segue, but I have <laughs> I have to ask this next question, uh, whether I have one uh, or I don't. Uh, so a couple of years ago, uh, the Sabers offered you the position of president of hockey ops, which you accepted. But then uh, shortly, uh, a couple months after that, you resigned. Was there anything or uh, anything that that you would like to share? Because you don't you don't have to. Uh, because this is uh, you know this is a this was a big position that you took, and then uh, you uh, you stepped down from it. Was there anything in particular that led you to believe? You know what? I don't think I I am either that I like the position that I'm in, or I'm not the right fit for this position, uh, or was this something that you t uh, that you wanted to do something with, but it, it turned out that you personally didn't feel like you were the best fit. What uh, take me through uh, those those couple months as president of hockey ops for the Sabers, if 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 uh, if you can. Well, it's it's something I I really can't come on comment on too much. Sure. Um, other than uh, no, other than it was something I was very excited about, and you know sometimes things do change and things do shift and and. From my end, it was, it's always been about principle, and um, so making a principle decision, um, and you know sometimes things change. Um, but but uh, by 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 any means uh, did that not you know did not change my love of that community and the the players, the team, um, the memories I had as a player there. And so you know sometimes things are a really good fit. Sometimes they're not, or they they shifted or changed. Um, but but it's also part of, like I said, good, bad, or different, um, you know, things that you experience. It brought me to the National Hockey League. It brought me back, back to New York. And, um, you know, I think we all have this, this uh, journey that we're on and, um, it was a learning experience and, um, you know, I have nothing but amazing memories of my time in Buffalo and the kids in Buffalo and families, relationships, the, the organization players, um, nothing but fond memories. And uh, it, like I said, it's brought me to an executive position in the National Hockey League to get involved in giving back, helping develop the sport um, at a larger scale and, um, you know, creating what we did with the Hockey Development Summit, Declaration of Principles, and during the time that uh, you were there, Andrew. And so for me, um, I always said that, uh, and I, it's a great book that I read, but uh, the All Blacks, uh, uh, New Zealand rugby team, they had a great quote where they said, to be a, a true leader and servant in your sport, um, you always want to try to leave it better than you found it. And um, so it was great to get back involved um, and and be able to be a part of trying to, to leave the sport better than we found it. And that's something I've been a, a part of and a mission to, to continue to grow our sport and to, to leave it better for the next generation. So um, that's what it's brought us to brought me to this point, and uh, I would have never been doing this 
podcast if it wasn't for going to the National Hockey League, Andrew. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I remember when I was the broadcast engineer for the NHL a couple summers ago, and you showed me a draft of what later became the Declaration of Principles. For those that don't know, uh, tell me what that is and why this initiative is so important to you. Well, it's, it's, it's really important because what we did in the three years was we created the Hockey Development Summit, and it was every leader from every organization that was in the room. It's probably about 30 of us. Um, and it was all levels of the game and talking about, um, uh, you know, globally, mostly North American, but obviously we had some global um, connections there. And we had the, uh, the, the World Cup in Toronto. We also had some, some meetings and talks, you know, talks with uh, World of Hockey. But, but during those meetings, we we all tried to say, can, can we all align and work together to be better? And during that time, we kind of created that hockey spine and, you know, we weren't aligned and we, there was some fragmentation and communication. And so what that did during those three years, when it, it actually brought all the, the leaders of those organizations in a room to say, can we all learn to work together, communicate and by working together, can we be better? Can the game of hockey be better? And we realized too, that the, culture of the sport needed to be better. And uh, one of the things we all decided was we hired a group called Life Sports, uh, Chris Price and uh, James Hippett, a group out of California that, that did a deep dive and went around North America, uh, went to the Hockey um, uh, World Cup Summit and went around for six months talking to coaches, parents, rink operators, referees, and really did a deep dive on, on what they were saying and how they felt about the game. And we realized the culture of hockey, you know, needed to come together and be better. And so we decided to create the Declaration of Principles, which is really a platform for, you know, wanting to, as a whole, strive to be better, raise the standard of our sport, raise the standard of behavior. Hockey's not perfect, but we kind of planted a flag to want us to aspire to live to those values and principles. And literally the Declaration of Principles was created. Um, there's probably about 100 different drafts and the wording. Uh, Commissioner Bettman and parents and um, uh, coaches, referees, everybody was a part of crafting and creating that document from what they were saying during this deep dive with live sports. And as we came closer to those three years, it was September 6th, I believe, 2017, the global hockey community, the 17 organizations, which encompass the registration of the global hockey community came together to sign on to the declaration of principles, to live by a higher standard um, and a higher values. And it's, it's really, you know, taken off to be that document that policies are, um, you know, in, incorporated policies are changed. Um, the type of thinking that, that for the future generations that we would aspire to live by. So I think your behavior is your brand and, and to bring the behavior and to bring the values and to aspire to live by higher principles um, is the first stake in the ground. And then bringing them to life is really the secret and the key. And, and that's what uh, is starting to happen in different layers of the, of the, of the Declaration of Principles and different principles, bringing them to life is, is really the secret now. And uh, it's something, you know, I think everybody in the room is very proud of that helped to bring that. But more importantly, uh, all, all parents, referees, coaches, players, uh, rank operators that were involved and who have adopted the Declaration of Principles to lift a higher standard is really helping to grow the game. And I think it's, uh, it's an amazing platform to be a part of. I remember uh, when when I when I interned at the NHL and we went for coffee, which I still really appreciate that that, that you did that in the midst of uh, your incredibly busy schedule. You took an intern uh, for coffee, so I mean that that I still remember uh, that day. And you, one of the things you said was uh, one of the things about playing for all three New York teams. Nobody can hate me because New York is my home, and that to me, I mean. 
that kind of exemplifies uh, just your playing career and and you uh, as a as a whole because not only have you played uh, for for all three New York teams and never played for anybody else in the NHL, but you're also still giving back to the state of New York and beyond uh, with these with all of these programs and and your uh, organization and the Declaration of Principles. So this is uh, th- th- all of this has kind of culminated into. Pat LaFontaine, the past, the present, and also the future, because I'm assuming that that neither of those things, neither the the the, uh, the, the Declaration of Principles nor your foundation is uh, they're not going anywhere, and uh, if, if they'll they'll only continue to grow. So these are things that uh, everybody appreciates, even even those people that that don't say it directly to you. They appreciate it. I appreciate it. Even though uh, I signed the, that declaration, the the second it came out uh, on the website, and though I'm not directly involved in your foundation, I mean I appreciate it. The fact that you know you're giving back and and uh, helping the community out. The, there's there's no words that I can use to describe how everybody appreciates the work that you do. And Pat, you you giving me an hour of your time uh, means the absolute world to me uh and i really 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 do appreciate you giving me some of your time today hey my pleasure andrew and and uh listen it's great that the national hockey league uh, is the north star and that other organizations are following their leading by example and you know that's where we met and i think um it it, it takes all of that that hockey spine to 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 really kind of grow the sport and um you know like i said you want to leave it better than you found it and Happy to give the time and hopefully, uh, you know, continued success to you. And Andrew, it was a a pleasure meeting you during your time uh, at the NHL. And I'm excited for you and your future. And thanks for what you're doing for the sport. Thank you so much, Pat. And uh, when you have some time, uh, let me know and I will repay uh, uh, coffee next time. It'll be on me. Just let me know uh, and I will make sure that that happens. Uh, (laughs) That's a a deal. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Pat, thank you again. Thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, again, I can't put it into words, but this this was an incredible conversation. You gave me over an hour of your time and I, I can't thank you enough. My pleasure. Hey, all the best, Andrew. Good luck. Thank you, Pat. And this has been Thank episode. You. And this has been episode number seventy-five of Chill Square. That was Pat Lafontaine, the NHL legend, Sabres legend, Islanders legend, Rangers legend, hockey legend. Pat Lafontaine. Episode number seventy-six coming out next Friday. I'll talk to you then.